0: Log Talk Radio. Good evening, and welcome to the Coffee Clutch. This is Marianne Russo. Um, thank you for joining us tonight. I have May Wilkinson is um, hosting on our Twitter tweet chat. We have an automated chat room, and you can use the hashtag TCK um, to join in and interact with others. And also Irene Cotter, who is the um, who is an employee at. Um, New Haven Residential Treatment Center is going to be on the chat as well, so you'll be able to speak with her. She's um, in admissions, and you'll be able to ask her questions, and we'll be discussing the interview. Um, I'm very excited tonight to have Dustin Tibbets. Um, he is the president of Interchange and the executive director of the New Haven Residential Treatment Center, and he has a lot of clinical experience in healing trauma, um, attachment disorders, sexual abuse, personality disorders, eating disorders, uh, depression, um, a lot of um, a lot of problems that teen girls and young adults struggle with and um, it really can affect not only their life but their whole family so um, let me welcome Dustin Tibbetts thank you for joining me
1: thank you Mary I appreciate you having me on
0: well, you know, we've become quite um, good friends New Haven um RTC and uh, the coffee Clatch on Twitter and uh, it's just been fantastic resource for us. So, I want to, you know, say that right now that anybody on Twitter really follow New Haven RTC. She's just terrific. Uh, but first I wanted to um talk about how you started um working with these girls and tell us what interchange is.
1: Uh we started about well I started about uh, 17 years ago and um there were a group of us who were frustrated with the way um, young women were being treated Uh, back, back then it was pretty much uh, adjudicated boys treatment applied to young women and uh, it wasn't working. And so I was, I was fortunate to be with a couple of folks who started a program called new Haven. And um, uh, we were trying to make relationship based treatment um, really work and values based treatment really work. And I'm, pretty happy to say that nowadays um, relationship-based and values-based are, are uh, words you hear a lot when you hear treatment described for young women. Um, over time, we we formed a company called Interchange and that company acquired a program called Sunrise, which is also a treatment center for young women, ages uh, 13 to 17. And then uh, we have one more program called Fulcher Ranch, which is for adult women, 18 to 25, uh, to help with transition. So that's a little bit about us.
0: Well, you know, I mean, I would imagine that, you know, and I agree with you, there really was nothing out there. And even now, you know, it's um, it's a struggle to get there. You know, I think that by the time parents um, get to you, um, they've been dealing with a broken mental health system. Um, they're very frustrated, and um, really they're, they're in crisis with their families. Um, so, you know, I wanted to talk first before we go into, you know, these terrific um residential centers that you have, I I want to talk about what leads up to it. Um, You know, because I I would imagine that there are a lot of failed attempts. So let's start with what types of um, disorders and problems do you usually see um, that brings the family to the crisis? And, um, you know, why does the outpatient treatment fail?
1: Okay, those are really great questions. Um, What brings, I'd say in every case... um, a young woman has some form of depression uh, and or anxiety, and that could have been caused by a number of things, but a large number of the young women we treat um, have experienced some kind of trauma. Um, in fact, their entire family has experienced uh, trauma just through the process of attempting to find, as you alluded to, attempting to find some kind of solution to whatever problem they have. Um, most folks will go through uh, an outpatient therapist, and then that doesn't work, and then they go to maybe a psych hospital, perhaps there's a suicide attempt or um, something very serious. They may um, eventually try a wilderness-type uh, program where they're out in the woods for uh, 30 to 90 days, and that hasn't worked. Sometimes they'll try a boarding school that has some therapeutic support. So these these people have just done everything possible for their children that they can think of, um, and then they, they find uh, find us, so... By this point in time, as I said, they've had some serious trauma um trying to piece their family back together uh, A lot of our girls um, have sort of dabbled with with substances um not a whole lot of them are are classic uh, addicted folks, but they um many of them have tried you know alcohol or marijuana or or whatever um right. about thirty percent of them have some kind of attachment or adoption issue, which, um, as I got into this business, struck me as kind of high. Um, uh, And I'd say maybe about uh, 25% of them struggle with some kind of eating disorder, and I would say every one of them struggles with some type of body image problem. So it's a wide range of of issues.
0: And, you know, I think it's so important that, you know, you are addressing the girls um, separately from the boys because the issues, you know, even though a lot of them have the same issues, they really are very different um for the girls. And um, you know, I I know that, you know, a lot of the problem the parents face is non-compliance with these kids. And like you said, you know, there are some kids that, you know, just dabble, but there are other girls that have dual diagnoses that make it difficult for the parents too. Um, you know, meaning a, a mental illness and a substance abuse. Um, you know, so where does a parent begin? How does a parent know that they've really exhausted every outpatient option?
1: Uh, it's re- it's really interesting you asked me that i i was talking with uh, one of my friends in in ontario and uh they she, she had this experience they they were meeting with the psychiatrist of a hospital um up in ontario and the psychiatrist kept saying well i just think it's that parents don't know where to find the resources i think many many parents at first think that that they just there must be something out there that we just haven't found yet and and as she talked to the psychiatrist um he suggested setting up a a uh, what do you call it, like a town hall, and they had over a hundred parents show up, which was just astonishing to the psychiatrist. And uh, as he was talking to these these parents, he found out that not only had they exhausted every resource possible, but they knew exactly where to go to find them. And, with, and what the problem was was that they they had not worked; these resources had not worked at all. Right. So I think the parents. Um, I mean, that shifted his paradigm, as you can imagine. All of a sudden, he realized the problem was much bigger than, than what he had comprehended. But the parents that uh, have tried everything really know who they are. They they have literally talked to every judge, every you know doctor, every <laughs> relative that they have, um, right. and they've, they're at their wit's end. So they start reaching out um, maybe to an educational consultant who specializes in behavior modification programs, or they reach out... Um, on the Internet late at night, you know, they're up at, at 2 in the morning searching. Right. Um, so it's just it's part.
0: exhausting for parents, and it's so frustrating. And, you know, I, I think a lot of the time it's it's so frustrating because they see the pain that their daughters are in. They see the behavior. They see promiscuous behavior, um, you know, and, and they just... No matter what they try, it doesn't work. And, you know, I think part of the problem is that, um, you know, I think parents tend to look at the child differently. I mean, they love that child. They have, you know, the bond with that child, and they want to fix them. Um, you know, and I think that sometimes, you know, they have to come to the reality that, you know, the child is too comfortable having their disorder at home, you know. <laughs> That's a great point. That's an
1: excellent point. I think I think you've hit on something very very strong, and that is that you can't just send a kid away like a car, hoping that it will be fixed and brought home. You know, it, right. it takes the involvement of everyone, including the parents. That's a really great point.
0: Yeah. And you know, I don't think you know personally. I just don't think you can fix these kids I don't think you fix mental illness you don't fix autism you know you teach them coping skills and you treat it and you manage it you know I think when parents come to that point then you know the the, then there's progress um but you know when what would the process be for a parent let's just say that the child is just completely spun out of control um you know all efforts um outpatient have been exhausted so how does a parent start this process
1: um well I I would say they they have to gather every resource together, so um, you know, clergy and and school and everyone. But in order to find an, an RTC, if that's is that what you're what you're asking, Marianne, is how to find an RTC.
0: Right, and you know how to how to find the right one that fits because you know there, there are a lot of different options out there. Um, they're all not the same, as you well know. Um, you know, so it, it's really a process of finding what is best going to suit their child yeah. and their child's disorder. So where would a parent begin that process? And when is it a good time to um, bring the child into the decision-making? And is there sometimes the decisions have to be made without the team? I see.
1: Um, well, there are a few places they can go. One is um, uh, educational consultants can be a, a vast uh, resource, a ton of knowledge on um hundreds of residential treatment centers that are that are the best of the best, and that's um, educationalconsulting.org is a good place to start. Another place is um, NATSAP.org, N-A-T-S-A-P, the National Association of Therapeutic Schools and Programs. Another place would be AACRC, the American Association of Child Residential Centers. Um, that's AACRC-DC.org. Those three are pretty strong uh, places, to start another place would be strugglingteens.com um no oh, they've been on good, here uh, mm-hmm. yeah they've had some good they've got okay. some good stuff so um i think i guess the main message there is that they're not alone in this and there are a lot of folks who've been through it before and there are a lot of good people who can help guide them through the process
0: and you know i think that a, a lot of parents just have such a fear Um, you know, that their child is depressed and anxious and they just have a fear that the child is just going to hate them forever, Um, you know, that they're going to be traumatized and, you know, I think that the kids are going to be angry initially, especially if they don't want to go and, you know, I think that anytime you're, you know, taken out of your home, you're going to be traumatized, but, you know, what would you tell parents about how to get over that anxiety?
1: Um, Anytime they can visit and meet with the people that are going to be caring for their daughter, it's, uh, I would, i Re- highly recommend that, in fact, I would personally never place my child anywhere I hadn't been. Right. Some parents really can't make that trip, and so they've got to rely on maybe talking to people who have been through it like the you know if a program won't let you talk to its alumni or it's or it's people that are currently with them. that's a red flag right. um, but they <clears throat> the main thing is to look for um people professionals who are relationship focused you you mentioned um you can't uh, fix these problems you can manage them i would i would add to what you said and say that you have to have a relationship with this person it's it's not like the person is an object we're trying to mess with this is this is someone that we love and care about and and have an equal relationship with and so if you could find people like that i think it puts parents at ease especially when they come to our campuses they walk around and they feel the genuine care that we have and And I think that wins them over and and relieves some of their concerns.
0: Right. Yeah, I think, you know, people have, um, you know, an idea of what it's like, and it's just, you know, so wrong. I mean, your facilities are amazing. And, you know, I like the fact that, um, you know, you say in, um, I guess it was on your website or your bio, something that I read, that this is really very family-based. This is not an individual-type therapy program. And if families don't want to be involved, um this may not be the the right uh setting for them.
1: Yeah, I, I was at a um I, I sit on a board of, of uh residential treatment centers, about hundred and forty five treatment centers across the country and, and this board was talking about challenges to treatment and, and one of the things that we all know and the research has shown us forever is that when the family is involved in treatment it goes it goes better and mm-hmm. it lasts longer. We know this for, for decades, we've known this, and yet many treatment centers will not make the um, monetary or political commitment to doing that. And, and um, I think that's one of the reasons that interchange and its programs are so successful is because uh, because of the heavy involvement of the family. Just if I can give you a, a, a statistic, um, the industry average for recidivism rate is over seventy percent. Wow! That means. Yeah, it's terrible. Seventy percent of the kids will fail after they're done, which is why I think we see so many kids, you know, come to our program having been to, having been to, you know, four or five or six programs before us. Our goal is to get them home and to keep them home and to stop that perpetual cycle of treatment. And um, our 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 recidivism rate is the exact mirror opposite of the industry. So thirty percent of our kids. Um, Will go. Will we'll not. I'm saying this wrong, but uh, more than seventy percent of our kids. So there are only
0: thirty percent actually that that wind up uh, returning.
1: Yeah, it's actually higher That's than that, good. but it's, it's 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 That's great. Good. You know, it's it's fantastic. So the you
0: last and it makes so much sense because the kids i mean I don't, I don't even if even if the you know you also have programs for young adults that we're going to go into which is what i really want to delve into with you um because you know that's really where these parents lose control um you know they're going to go home so you know the family um you know whoever is going to be there, their support system has to understand you know what they've learned how to support the um the management, the coping skills, I mean it's so important. And a lot of, you know, these kids, um, you know, because of I mean it's an enormous stress on marriages. When you have a child with a mental illness or you have a child that's really out of control and struggling, it puts a lot of pressure on the, the parents and the siblings. So, you know, everybody needs some healing. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Could now when more.
0: when these kids come in is it best for them not to have communication with um with home for a while or do you encourage communication?
1: No, we encourage communication. I um they they do need some time to sort of acclimate, but I think the quicker you can get them talking to their parents again and and um you know interfacing on with family therapy and phone calls is the better. Uh, we encourage the parents to write letters immediately. Sometimes their kids don't want to talk to them, and we say just keep sending emails, keep writing letters. We've got to keep that that family relationship alive. All right,
0: and um, you know, as I said, it's a broken system. So you know, a lot of times by by the time the parents get to this point, um, they've exhausted all of their finances. Um so you know walk us through the process of you know how i mean the, these programs are expensive and they're expe- expensive because you know they they really have a lot of services. Um so tell us how a parent now if they've chosen New Haven or Sunrise or, or whatever um you know what the process is for funding.
1: Um you know after uh, after 2008 many many private resources for funding uh, went away. Um, it was, it's much harder to get loans for education and for for treatment now um, uh, a lot of a lot of parents will dip into um, their savings or their you know 401 ks things like that a lot of parents will um, will go through school districts sometimes um,
0: right.
1: if they can yep. if they can prove that their child can't be served in that school district the school district uh, in some states is mandated to pay for it um, others have some kind of benefit. With uh, the parity laws that were passed a little while back, there are some insurance companies who have really changed the way they pay for inpatient services. So there are some some options there.
0: Now, um, can you explain the differences between a residential treatment center, um, a psychiatric hospital, and a boarding school? Because there are very big differences.
1: There are huge differences, yes. Right. A, A psychiatric hospital would... Would be completely locked down and uh, shorter term, uh, much more expensive, you you know, talking in thousands of dollars per day, but you're talking about, you know, three, maybe max 14 days, and you're just trying to stabilize someone who's attempting suicide perhaps.
0: And oftentimes they they don't get stabilized because they're just, you know, putting different medications, so they come home, you know, adjusting.
1: Right. Yeah, you've seen that. Yeah, yeah. Just a right. cocktail of medication that is just right. astronomical.
0: Yeah.
1: And then, um, uh, was it a therapeutic boarding school? You said. Yeah. Not the other one. Mm-hmm. Therapeutic boarding school is on the other, the opposite end of the spectrum, where it's mostly, um, you know, a, a classic boor, uh, boarding school with maybe some support. Maybe once every two weeks they see a therapist, or there's a counselor who's available. You know offsite somewhere to see them and and the school works closely with the therapist a residential treatment center is has married both of those worlds um, you have uh, an accredited school you have uh, the ability to to keep kids in a facility, but probably the doors are not locked um, and you provide a lot of treatment if you could think of I think one of, my, one of my friends says, if you think of it like food groups, the five food groups, you have school and you have treatment and you have activities and so forth, mm-hmm. you know, a psych hospital is going to be heavy on the treatment and very small portions of edu- education. Therapeutic boarding school is going to have really large education and very small therapy. And an RTC, residential treatment center, is going to be kind of equal portions of all of it.
0: Right. And, you know, it, it's... I mean, it's really what, you know, so many of these girls need because, you know, the psychiatric hospital, I mean, of course, you know, it's needed when someone's attempted suicide or if they're, um, you know, psychotic, you know, then obviously that's needed. Um, But it really doesn't give them the skills. And like you said, you know, the boarding schools is a great option um, where, you know, the problem may be, you know, a family issue. That the child is just in, in a bad setting, um, but you know what you offer just really is you know everything that that these kids really need. Um, you know because I would imagine their social skills are compromised. You know anger yeah. management is probably compromised. So you know it's 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 good that they ha- they're able to acquire these skills in a safe place. But you know I know I think a lot of parents when they're looking at these places and they see the prices. You know, I mean, it's just you know who can you know who can afford fifteen thousand dollars a month? Um, but you know, there's there's something to think about that I want you to discuss about trying to find a place that's not as expensive, and you know why that could yeah. be a mistake.
1: Well, if the if the problem is truly ingrained and you've already been through four or five pro, you know programs, it, it's going to take something with the amount of resources that. Um, an interchange program, for example, might have. Um, but you raise a great point, and and, uh, and this may be not where you were hoping I would go with it or where you thought I'd go with it, but I, I do want to find a way at some point to be able to take the vast services that we have to people who can't afford it. I think they need it every bit as much as those that can't afford it, and we're, we're really trying to be creative with that and, and find ways to go into people's homes. Um, for example, we have uh, there's a program that we have where we actually – Uh, fly coaches into people's homes and try to help them out. Um, If they really can't afford a residential treatment, we'll do that. And, you know, work with their clergy and work with their their outpatient therapists and see if we can't, um, you know, move the needle a little bit and help that kid out. So I appreciate you raising that point because there's really many more people who can't afford it
0: than can. Oh, I mean, the system is just, you know, there's nothing out there for people that um, don't have the assets to borrow money with. Um, and yeah. you know, like I'm so glad you mentioned before the school districts because you know the the onus is on a lot of the districts if they cannot um, accommodate these children's needs. And um, you know, sometimes it's really worth pushing that. And it may not cover all the costs, but you know, parents shouldn't rule out having the districts pay for part of it.
1: Oh, absolutely. They, they they're required to many of them.
0: Right, they are, and parents aren't aware of that because, you know, we talk about IEP meetings all the time, and I do not bash school districts. I happen to live in a fantastic school district, and I think that, you know, they've got their hands full with, um, you know, all of these kids with all types of different disabilities. Um, But, you know, there are some that you walk in and, you know, they'll just tell you, no, you know, you're not entitled to that, and, you know, you really need to start looking up your rights. Go on to rights law. Um, But you know, I wanted to talk also about the difference between the short-term programs and the longer terms. Now, your programs range between seven to twelve months, and there are shorter programs that are about three months. So, what would be suited? uh, What would a three-month stay be suited for?
1: Um, there There are not a whole lot of residence treatment centers that are that short, but there are quite a few wilderness therapy programs, for example, that are and. Those are really excellent ways of, let's say you have a a young woman who um, has maybe started skipping school and has started to get into a little bit of drugs and is uh, maybe fairly entitled to their parents. A a short-term wilderness therapy program can really help her kind of get her head back on straight and and realize that the world does not revolve around her and she's messing up her life and she really ought to get back into school. That can really be powerful. Um, For more ingrained sort of longer-term issues, for example, maybe incest in the family or a young woman uh, has been raped and hasn't told her parents for a couple of years and then kind of comes out with that and says, I've been suffering this for a long time and I have an eating disorder now. And those types of really deep-rooted issues um, are probably better served in a place that can provide some long-term support and care because those issues are going to be really difficult for her to process.
0: Right. And, you know, I think also that... um, families like you just spoke of where there is incest or a daughter's been raped or, um, you know, the, the, there's a stigma, but I think that there is a general stigma for families that keep their children from going to residential placements when it is really the best option for, for many of these kids. Um, you know, how am I going to explain where my child is? I'm going to have to tell people my child has a mental illness and I think stigma, it's a shame because, you know, mental illness is a disease like anything else. And, um you know, how do you help parents get over the stigma? I mean, have you seen no, that?
1: They're, they're, I have, yeah. That's a great, great point. I was just with um, one of our uh, alumna in New York, and when she was here about uh, eight years ago, she that she was highly concerned about that. I mean, she, she came from a, an upper-class family, and she was supposed to go to all these Ivy League schools, and she wasn't going to make it there, and she was just mortified about what she was going to tell people. Well, I, re- I ran into her in, in New York just a few months ago and uh, completely transformed. And what what happens usually is that the, the, the girls end up able to navigate that better than the parents. And so they, they tend to walk their parents through it, which is kind of neat to see, mm-hmm. and explain to their parents that, hey, my true friends um, are not really going to care about this. So I'm going to play it safe and I'm going to go for a little while and, and uh, see how people react, and then I'll start to bring in people who I think I can trust, and maybe you should do the same thing, Mom and Dad, and Mom and Dad start to think, well, maybe that's rational. So um, the girls usually handle it pretty well.
0: Yeah, and I mean, listen, what parent doesn't want to save their daughter? Um, (laughs) Sure. It's it's heart-wrenching, you know, and you have a a daughter (laughs) that's really struggling and in pain. Um, So, you know, I want to talk, um, because I want to make sure that we leave time to talk about each um, of your Uh, centers and um but i I do want to talk about what would you say to a parent what are the questions that you should ask and what should you be looking for when you do go to visit
1: uh well first and foremost um you need to you need to feel comfortable with the people there just has to be a this doesn't sound scientific but there has to be a a gut feeling that these people are good right and to know that you've got to be with them um because people can't really fake it when they're in front of you, um, you've got to ask them about their outcomes. What you know, how have they done? That's really what they're there for. Is can they really help me? And and how do they get there? What uh, what proven methods have they have they used? Do they use the research they collect? Do they use the research in the field? Um, what kind of hiring standards do they have for their clinicians for the residential staff? Um, you know, are they accredited? Are they licensed? Um, Every state, uh, there's maybe three or four states in the whole country that don't have a license. Be, you know, be wise to avoid those. Really? Shoot for, yeah, shoot for states that do. Um, Our our programs are all um, accredited by the Joint Commission, which has a higher standard than any state licensure. Um, And I would encourage parents to look for a Joint Commission accreditation or a a CARF, C-A-R-F, accreditation. Um, you know, how do they prepare their girls for transition home? We we know from the research that it's the transition that really matters. It's not how long did she stay in treatment. It's how well was she transitioned back home. Um, I would what ask mean, for what alumni... What do you mean, by that? I mean uh I mean, for example, if a kid stays, let's say a kid stays eight months in a program and finishes the treatment, and another kid stays ten months in a program and finishes the treatment, it, it doesn't matter that the one kid stayed two months longer. She's not going to do any better. It's it's how well did they help transition her back into her community? Did they wrap around the services of the clergy and the school and the outpatient therapist? Did they really prepare her to have a soft landing? That's what really kind right. of seals the deal and and makes um, you know it helps you avoid recidivism. Um, soft
0: landing. I, I like think, that. because you know a lot of these kids go back to the same situation and you know oftentimes they were in with the wrong group and um, you know that's when a lot of the problems start you know the first couple of weeks they're okay and parents tell me over and over again that they get right back into the same um, group so yeah i would assume that planning ahead is is huge
1: oh yeah i mean they need to change and maybe you've heard this before but they need to change their their playgrounds their playmates and their playthings, and that takes a lot of planning and work
0: mm-hmm. and you know uh, a lot of parents have told me that when they've asked to speak to um, other parents who've had children there that they were told that they couldn't uh, provide that um, by the HIPAA law which just seemed odd to me
1: Yeah, that's, I would say that's a lie
0: um, okay <laughs> that's what I thought <laughs> I was like well did they're you, did you? <laughs> I said did you call to check that <laughs> <laughs>
1: absolutely yeah, no, there are plenty of alumni. If they're happy, they're they're more than happy to, to talk to people, so they should be able to talk to alumni.
0: Right. And I think, you know, some other concerns I'm going to throw out to you is that sometimes parents yeah. are concerned that by um, putting their child in a residential um, center, that if for some reason the child isn't handling it or they can't handle having the child there, um, that they feel that they've committed the, the child and that they can't take the child out. So how does that work?
1: Well, there are some programs uh, uh, that I've seen that actually tell parents that, and I would say avoid those programs like the plague. There are some that try to collect a large sum of money up front and tell you you can't have it back if you withdraw your daughter, for example. And in that way, they kind of strong-arm the parent into staying. But the parent has complete control. Um, unless it's a state uh, a state case where the, where the uh, courts have ruled that the parent no longer has guardianship, Mm-hmm. Then the parent always has control and can take the kid out whenever she wants. And if if uh, the parent's being charged an exorbitant amount of money, they can they can take that program to court.
0: Okay. And what about input on medication choices? Um, does the parent... For parents? You mean? Yes.
1: Oh, they should have a hundred percent input on that. They they need to be told. In fact, there's a there's a bill before um, there was a bill before the Senate last year that specifically. Um, mentioned that parents ought to have um, rights to that. And I thought that was so odd that that we would have to have a law that (laughs) <laughs> mandated that. It just seems rational to me, doesn't it? Yeah, Do I mean, it really does,
0: especially, you know, if your child um, has been, you know, ill, you know, from a young age and has exhausted and tried all of these medications, you know, and like I tell the parents, journal, journal, journal. Um, if you yeah. go back and you see that, you know, your kid did terrible on Depakote and, you know, that's what, you know, you, you should, the parents should be able to have input into, um, you know, giving the history and deciding on medications too. Um, no. But what I really want to start getting into is when it really gets difficult. When, okay. um, say, a child now is turning 18 and, okay. you know, the parents have just put it off a little bit too long, um, what options do parents have of a young adult?
1: Uh, that That's a great question. It gets much more difficult, doesn't it, after, after 18. It's kind of that magic age and... Um, There are a few uh, very good programs around the country that treat uh, 18-year-olds. There are a lot of very good programs that are in the the addiction world uh, set up for young adults and adults. There are fewer uh, that are set up for dual diagnosis or comorbid disorders um, that are more ingrained. And um, we have one called Shear Ranch, which which helps uh, 18- to 25-year-olds transition uh, back into the community. It's sort of a treatment and transition model. Um, there are places like that that are available to those people.
0: Right, but and um, you know, I want to talk more about that? So, well, I'll talk about that now. So, if if um, say a teen is in there at seventeen or sixteen, um, and they finish the program, but for whatever reason you feel that going back to the, um, you know, the home environment isn't good, they would go to them. Then they would next go to full shear. Is that how it works? Well, our, our
1: Actually, that's not how it works. Our preference is that, they, that we prepare them enough so they can go home. So this is a very small percent of people. Ninety-three mm-hmm. percent um, of our kids go back home. So this is right. seven, wow. seven percent. Yeah. So let's say that they're in the seven percent. Um, then we would consider Full Shirt um, just because I know those people very well. And um, Gail Jensen-Savoy, who's the director there, is fantastic. And, and so we would begin talking to the parents, have them go out and visit, uh, meet Gail, meet um Daniel, her clinical director, and just tour the campus and see if it's what they need. If they can provide some structure and some um life skill opportunities like work and school and things that I can't provide in a treatment center setting, like what I mean by school is like college and things like that. So it's it can be a perfect solution for some kids who really want to be launched into independence.
0: And, you know, I have a question. It's it's not really particular to um, what you're doing, but I I just, you know, know that a lot of families run into it. Um, Often when the child turns 18, the parents, let's just say the child has a suicide attempt um, or is hospitalized for whatever reason, the parents do not have a right to any information, from what I understand, or just, you know, very limited information. Um, Is there any way that a parent can get around that by a, um, you know, any type of... um, you know, healthcare proxy or or something to be have done before the child turns eighteen.
1: I'm uh, I'm not an expert in that. There there is a way to do that before the child turns eighteen, or even after the child turns eighteen, where a court yeah. can award can award the parent that type of um, extended right. guardianship.
0: Right,
1: right. But uh, it, I, you know, the best way we've seen to handle that is just to have explained to their daughter that parents you know need some of that information and have her sign a release. So once she mm-hmm. does that then they can have access to certain things and and um you know it's a fine line to walk because there are certain things that maybe you know she has a right to keep private other things they would need to know safety issues for example ought to be known right. Um, right. so you can navigate that if you have a relationship with these people just like you would navigate it with your own daughter or your own
0: cousin so now you have um three different centers you have New Haven Sunrise and Full Shear which we just discussed now, are they different in any way? So, you know, what I what I'm thinking is if you have a daughter that has depression and, you know, someone else has a daughter that has um, you know, anorexia. Um, do they need do they need specialized type of um programs or places or um can you um handle all of these different features in the girls?
1: Um, if if they have anorexia to the point where they are uh, severely uh, medically unstable, then none of the three of our programs can handle that. Um, so if they have, you know, a tube down their throat or they're, you know, they have to be watched constantly to make sure they're getting calories, that's not going to work our process. Right, right. Um, other than that, yes, if they have an eating disorder or depression and, you know, and or depression and or trauma, et cetera, then, yes, we can treat those um, sunrise is really unique in that it's it's right in the community in town, um, a couple of hours from Las Vegas, down in the southern part of Utah. Uh, it's right in this really, really cute little town, and the community has just rallied around them. Uh-huh. And they can they can take a, a young woman who's very suicidal, and they have a, a secure facility, and then they can you know gradually help her get to the point where she's working next door at the grocery store or across the street at the Wendy's or um, you know helping out at the, at the um, daycare or whatever and she can get a real taste of what you know life should be like um, right. they have they have a whole bunch of um, well every single clinician they have is foundationally trained in dialectical behavior therapy which is maybe more commonly known as DBT um, so they can take a, a young woman who maybe is, is self-harming, uh, who might have a budding personality disorder and really do wonders with her. Um, yeah, uh, I know, you know, there's a little,
0: what's that? So many of these girls, you know, they're cutting and self-harm. And, um, you know, I don't think parents get it, you know, that these, these kids are in a lot of emotional pain, you know.
1: Yeah, I'll tell so much. It, it's sometimes overwhelming. How, it's just astonishing what these girls go through nowadays. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, and it seems it's changed. I mean, I don't know, you know, because I've you know, i only been really dealing with this for the past 10 years, but it just seems that it's just so much harder uh, for these teens to cope with the world now.
1: Well, I wanted to ask you that because I'm interested in your thoughts on that because it seems to me the same way, but I'm just not sure if it's just that I'm getting tired or if it's just that they're getting I don't know.
0: You know, I think I think I see a lot of really poor role models. I see a lot of role models for these girls that, um, you know, have a sense of entitlement, um, that, you know, behave very badly and um, become celebrity status for it. Um, you yeah. know, and, you know, call me an old fart, but, you know, a lot of these um, <laughs> videos and everything else, uh, you know, they're just sending a really bad message to these kids. I agree. It's, you
1: know? no, no kidding. And social media has taken it to a new level. You know, you've got you got videos oh, on your phone now, and it's it can be very crazy.
0: The bullying yeah. is horrendous.
1: Oh, it's it's reached a whole new level. Yeah.
0: And, um, you know, so when the girls come to you, how do you decide, um, you know, I'd like you now to talk about um, Sunrise and about New Haven, and how do you decide which place would be best for them? And what is the process when when the girl finally arrives there? How is, I mean, you know, the parents are are sick to their stomachs because their child is, you know, taken away. Sometimes they have to be taken away um, by a service because they won't go willingly. And, you know, it's really a very traumatic situation. So um, take us through how you decide which is the best setting and, um, you know, what happens when the girls get there.
1: Okay. Well, uh, I've I've explained a little bit about Sunrise. So um, Mm -hmm. uh, I think as I explain a little bit about New Haven, you'll be able to see the the compare and contrast. Uh, New Haven is set um, in the middle of uh, about 20 acres of farmland. So it has less access to the community. It's more difficult for, for New Haven to get kids involved in in um, work experiences and that kind of thing. Um, but the kind of uh, folks that New Haven sees most often are those that have had extreme trauma and um, need some really, really um, clinical family work to be done. So uh, I would say if you have a, a really ingrained problem that's deep-rooted in a family, um and a, and a child needs to be there for about 10 to 12 months uh, because the, prog- the problem is so ingrained. Then New Haven is the place. Mm-hmm. Sunrise is shorter term and uh, right in town, and they have the DBT foundationally trained therapists. Um, so I think I think it's fairly clear which is which. And you um, know, if a girl needs more of a rural setting where she can play with her cats and and ride horses every day, then New Haven is probably the best.
0: I think we just lost Dustin for a minute. Let me see if he calls back. Dustin, are you there? Dustin? I'm going to give it another second. Um, you know, to me, um, while I'm waiting for Dustin to call back in, um, you know, it just seems that um, you know there would be a lot of um, bonding at the New Haven um, facility, which would be great. Um, because you know, a lot of these kids they don't trust anybody. You know, they've been through so much, and they don't have relationships with friends, their peer relationships, their family relationships. And um, oftentimes, these girls really bond, you know, with other girls that can understand what they're going through. Um, I'm hoping that Dustin is going to call back in. I see him here. Dustin, you're back. Hello. Can you hear me? I can hear you now.
1: Okay. Okay, we're back. I was just
0: saying while you were while you were off the air that um you know New Haven sounds to me like it would be a really great p- place for um these girls to learn trust and bonding um which a lot of these girls really don't trust anybody, you know. Yeah. Yeah, well, and the, so you yeah, have exactly. equine therapy also?
1: We do. All, all three of our programs have equine therapy. Fullshire Fullshire Ranch has the most equine therapy um New Haven 2nd and Sunrise 3rd, um, but the kids that's, can ride.
0: That's, and that's, that's huge.
1: Yeah, it's it's amazing to see. For example, out there the other day, a young woman who'd been sexually abused was was um, managing this enormous horse, you know, and just the, the confidence in her face was just amazing. Right. You know, she was just handling. You can see how healing that would be for someone like that to get their power back, you know.
0: And, you know, it was explained to me, um, we've had Horse Ability and a few other places on the show, that really it's that um, the girls need to um, learn how to compromise and collaborate because if they want to get the horse to do something, they can't do it by stomping their feet and having a fit, you know? (laughs) That's
1: right. Exactly right.
0: Yeah, so you know that's a great—it's just a great thing, um, and you know, let, let's talk about the um, the process um, before we go off. Um, you know, when the girl shows up, you know, how how is the the, the team dealt with, and um, you know, just to put the parents' minds at ease.
1: Well, we take that that uh, very seriously. Um, can you still hear me? Yeah. Okay. Good. I, uh, it's just critical that we handle that right. So the young woman comes in with her parents. Hopefully that's the best way to have it happen. Sometimes parents will will send their daughter, but um, preferably comes with her parents and meet with the admissions folks and every key member of the team together. So, you know, who's going to be their residential supervisor, who's going to be their, their therapist. Um, it's just important for her to, to meet them face-to-face, have the parents see her reaction to them. Then they they introduce her to her room and, and have some of the kids come and show her around the campus. She'll be assigned a, a mentor, a, a peer mentor, who will kind of show her the ropes, um, You know, tell her which days have the best food and <laughs> which times of the day and that kind of thing, and just get her kind of oriented. Um, parents are being oriented at the same time to their expectations. We have high expectations of parents because we're such a family-centered program. And then by the end of the day, having met everyone, you know, three or four hours later, then they come back to say goodbye to each other and and that's the first uh, first day.
0: Right. Yeah, you know, we have some uh, interesting conversation on the um the chat. Um there's a woman here, um voice in recovery, and she joins us often, she's just fantastic. And she really um doesn't feel that um role models and uh celebrities um can account for um, the pain and the harm. Um, so I've just asked her, you know, why do girls self harm? Um, so I'm waiting to hear what she has to say. But um, you know, I really I want I want to thank you for joining us because I think that this is something that you know parents um, that have a, a daughter that is completely out of control just have in the back of their mind, and I think they a lot of them know that it, it what it's what has to be done, and then you know their fear just keeps them from 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 doing it. So. You know, I'm glad you came on. I'm glad that you have this, you know, these amazing programs. So, can you tell us your? you tell us your website where they can find you.
1: You. you? you bet. got Thank you, Marianne. You've
0: been very, very kind and gracious to me. Oh, you're um, welcome. The, the Voice in Recovery, by the way, um, feels that, um, you know, coping mechanisms and chemical release, um, you know, biology has a lot to do with it, and, you know, I agree absolutely. Um, you know, we've we've had on um, unbelievable experts on the show, uh, Dustin, and one of the things that, you know, is a common um you know factor that no matter who I talk to, whether I speak with you know Temple Grandin or I speak with you know Dr. Ross Green, it really all comes down to acquired coping skills, and you know some kids just don't acquire skills naturally like other kids.
1: It's true, it's true. if yeah. I could maybe build on build on what you said and what voice in recovery is saying the i think in in addition to that, coping skills outside of a healthy relationship with another human being are are probably not quite enough. I would say it it takes both. It takes a um a healthy environment, emotional safety and the coping skill.
0: Right? And you're finding out where the pain is coming from because these you know these girls right. that are cutting are in pain and boys and a lot of boys are cutting. So, you know, that this is uh your um programs are for girls, but you know, let's not forget the boys are going through a lot too. Um so again, right. I want to thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's been a um, wonderful I just wanted,
1: thing.
0: Oh, thank you. Um, I just want to announce that we have had a very big week. We have launched our new website, which I am very proud of. Uh, we will be adding resources um, as soon as um, – actually, it's just been turned over to me, so I will be adding a lot more resources. And um, we actually just switched over because Facebook likes to torture me um, and everyone else, (laughs) and they've made us all change. So we have now launched a fan page versus a group, and I'm really hoping that everybody comes over and share your resources. And, you know, you're going to be surprised. You know, these experts, um, you know, New Haven, everybody that comes on, they jump on our Facebook and, you know, they talk with everybody. And, you know, just come on over. It's a great place. Um, as I end the show each day, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent. Thank you for joining us tonight at the Coffee Clatch. Thank you, Dustin. Thank you, Irene. And thank you, May Wilkinson. Thank you. You've been great.